So today I'm going to be speaking a, a little bit about transhumanism. And um, I will have some slides to share uh, about some particular, some images um, that uh, I'll be speaking to, but um, I don't kind of get that into that until kind of, I don't know, about a, a third or halfway into the um, discussion. Um, so perhaps um, I'll reserve putting up my slides until I actually get to them. So you can, uh, I guess, just see me <laughs> instead of instead of the, the slides themselves. Um, but I will get to that in, in due course. Um, but first, um, I'll just dive right into uh, the paper itself, the presentation. The great philosopher Mary Midgley writes in her book, The Myths We Live By, we are accustomed to think of myths as the opposite of science, but in fact, they are, they are a central part of it, the part that decides its significance in our lives. Midgley's central task in this text is to suggest that myth is still very much alive today for modern Western peoples. And just because we tell ourselves we have become more advanced and that myth need not apply to us moderns, we still find it cropping up, even or perhaps especially in those places which are purported to be the instruments of this demythologization, such as with techno science. Midgley goes on to say, so we very much need to understand these techno scientific myths. Now, she understands that she is speaking to people that have this knee-jerk reaction to myth speaking and are quick to associate myth with being untrue. She speaks to this saying, myths are not lies, nor are they detached stories. They are imaginative patterns, networks of powerful symbols that suggest particular ways of interpreting the world. They shape its meaning. In line with such scholars as diverse as Mercia Eliade, Charles Taylor, and even C.S. Lewis, myth and its meaning for humanity cannot and ought not be so quickly reduced to just untrue. Like Midgley and company, I agree that mythologizing is not an option, an either or for humanity. I agree with Heidegger and others that we are meaning bearing or meaning imbuing creatures. We are thoroughly hermeneutical. We do without conscious awareness, and it is precisely those areas, such as techno-science, that claim to not mythologize that need the most attention, for they don't acknowledge how it truly affects their discipline and adherence. This is really Midgley's driving concern behind her text, to point out that techno-science does mythologize and how it does so. The techno-scientific myth that is dealt with in this presentation, and arguably one of the most central to Midgley's work, is the myth of progress. And what I want to do in this short amount of time is to chart a kind of intellectual history of this myth of progress and how it has been embedded, and perhaps is still embedded, in the claims of science and technology. First, I'll begin with the claims of this myth of progress and try to arrive at some of the characterizing features of it. Next, we turn to the origins of this myth of progress and how it became entwined with the claims of techno-science leading into its prominence in the 19th century. I then turn to the first part of the 20th century when this myth is seriously questioned 
and the entire edifice of the modern project begins to crumble at, at its base. And from here, I focus on more recent techno-scientific utopias that culminate in transhumanism and show a propensity in taking up this myth once again. Finally, several comments were made about what might make this myth so convincing and why it continues to haunt our conceptions of history in the future, and also um, how uh, transhumanism, how uh, uh, transhumanism uh, takes this myth um, and almost kind of has, has a kind of religious value, I think, for it as a particular kind of ideology. Well, let's turn first to what is this myth of progress. What is it? It's a belief that history, society, mankind has advanced, is continuing to advance, and will advance in the future. We might ask then, what is meant when we say that we are advancing? There is an inherent claim that a particular target is incrementally getting closer. This myth of progress depends upon this target, this ideal. We are advancing on this imagined or projected ideal and hence are making progress towards it. Indeed, I think we can say with real force that a necessary distinction between what we might deem change from progress is precisely the ideal with which we measure this change. If it moves towards or away from this ideal, we can say that we are making progress or regressing from it respectively. Change has no goal or ideal, progress does. This advancing to a proposed ideal is thoroughly historical and integrally related to the future. The myth of progress claims that the present is a diminished form of what is to come. It is not complete and often signals the, the, the discrepancy between the imperfect present and a fulfilled and perfect future. This is where uh, utopian uh, tradition really comes out. Often this myth of progress is represented in utopian literature, such that the ideal to be attained is represented as a projected reality or a society. The point behind this utopian literature is comparison with the present. And one of the most often cited roads to attaining this perfect state is through the myth of progress. The mantra might be, we aren't there now, but this is what is in store for us to come. Now, it seems to me that when we invoke the myth of progress, there are at least three targets or goals to which we refer. The first is epistemological in nature. We might say that we are advancing towards a better understanding of truth, taken as a kind of correspondence theory of truth. This might depend upon certain methodologies, disciplines, or practices, which in some sense tell us about reality. We might refer to religious tenets and articles of faith to do this. We could appeal to philosophical scrutiny and the domain of logic. Or we might call on the method and practice of science and its strict empirical standards. Each of these constitutive practices have been used to invoke the necessity of the myth of progress, and each can be used in asserting the relative progress they might make towards truth. So this is the first is kind of epistemological in nature. But this often abstract aim towards truth finds a correlate in how this might get worked out in the specifically human arena or culturally arena or in reality. The second goal of this myth of progress may refer to how mankind progresses and how the human condition gets improved. This might mean the pervasion of particular personal virtues such as justice, tolerance, independence, liberty, or it might refer to a kind of shared communal value like social justice or equality. So progress here is afforded when elements which cultivate 
the inner human experience and are often associated with positive moral virtues are said to be realized in history. Progress happens when human beings attain, even in part, certain values. Finally, the third might refer to a specific context-independent concrete condition, which are often kind of quantifiably measured. So instead of progress aiming at a more virtuous inner life of human beings, it can be measured utilizing particular empirical metrics. For instance, we might say that progress is attained if there are certain objective metrics which can actually show us uh, uh, reaching this kind of progressive state. This measure might include things like um, uh, reduced morbidity or premature mortality or an increased gross domestic product. The aim here in this kind of third version is, is more quantifiable and physical than just the reflection of virtues as kind of stated in the uh, second potential aim. Now, the myth of progress can often refer to any one of these uh, three proposed goals. Often, however, the second and third aims are held to be products of the first. In other words, a greater knowledge of the surrounding world invariably leads to creating an environment more hospitable to human flourishing, both externally and internally. Additionally, if we have a better understanding of ourselves and of how others interact with each other in society, we will be in a better position to attain it. As Plato reminds us in the Republic, the first step to achieving the good is a proper knowledge of the good. But what makes this adherence to progress a myth as opposed to just a general belief in a kind of notion of progress? What value is added when we refer to it as a myth? First, I think it speaks of the embeddedness of the belief. Simple extirpation or jettisoning at a moment's notice is just not possible with myths. Because they are so embedded in belief structures, they are second, very resilient. Third, myths are a special kind of narrative or story. The ones that elucidate ultimate concern and are related to existentially. They are connected to how we perceive the world, interpret it, and imbue existential meaning into the world around us, as um, I spoke uh, about Mary Midgley. It is better to say that we trust in these myths rather than believe in them, for we engage them personally, rather than assent to them in some kind of disengaged way. We adhere to them with our lives, not just our minds. In fact, there have been several psychological studies which reveal the deeply subjective and existential features of belief in progress. These studies actually show the close proximity of belief in progress and belief in traditional religion that I'll get back to at the end. But just as an anticipation, uh, the social psychologist uh, at Oxford, Miguel Farias, has stated this. Recent studies have suggested that belief in human progress can serve the same compensatory functions previously implicated in religious belief. In these studies, people were found to be more resilient to stress and anxiety stemming from reflection on one's own mortality when they adhered to the myth of progress. Those in these studies related to belief in progress in the same way a religious person would relate to a doctrine of their faith by drawing existential value from it. Therefore, I think referring to the mythic function of belief in progress is an entirely adequate proposal. And so I'll continue in this presentation to refer to it as a myth. 
But how has this myth of progress come about? And as Medjli tells us, how is it inseparable from the rise of science and technology in the Enlightenment through to modernity? So let's uh, go back to the beginning. Origins are always interesting for trying to arrive at a particular explanation. Uh, uh, what is the genealogy of this particular myth? Well, the origins of the myth of progress tend to land somewhere near the Enlightenment. But some scholars have argued that the myth of progress is visible even prior to this, finding ancient and Christian medieval sources for it. For instance, Xenophanes in the 6th century declared this, the gods did not reveal to men all things in the beginning, but men through their own search find it in the course of time, that which is better. And Protagoras, one of the first and most well-known of the sophists, was emphatic that man's plight is an ever gradual ascent from bestial beginnings lacking in culture to one of enlightenment through the advancement of knowledge. And finally, we might add, there is Aeschylus's Prometheus bound, where despite Prometheus's own cursing of his having brought fire to man, it is clear that it has improved the conditions of humankind and brought with it the development of culture, language, and indeed technology. Similarly, despite the most widely read work, The Myth of Progress, which is J.B. Berry's The Idea of Progress, an inquiry into its origin and growth, published in 1920, claiming the opposition of the modern myth of progress to Christianity, a genealogy is readily visible. For example, the Christian mystic Joachim de Fiori in the latter half of the 12th century proposed his famous ascent of history in three stages, each corresponding to a person of the Trinity, the age of the father and the law, the age of the son and the gospel, and that which still lies ahead in the age of the spirit, when human beings would be liberated from their physical animal desires and would know a contemplative serenity and happiness of mind scarcely even describable in uh, Fiore's own words. This would go on to influence Fiore's most famous Dominican uh, um, disciple, Campanella, whose work, The City of the Sun, describes a utopian society where humankind lives, quote, all things in common. And many of his other utopian works reflect a devout religious sensibility. But the traditional story of the rise of the myth of progress is located within the currents of rationalism and science associated most with the 17th centuries and onward. Indeed, despite apparent influences of millenarian dreaming in the Christian tradition, it would be the development of a novum organum, um, uh, we'll get to in just a moment, Francis Bacon, a new method which would become modern science that would spark hopes in a new relation to reality which promised nothing less than perfection and progress. So let's turn to Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon has much to owe for this coupling of techno-science and progress. The father of modern science and patron of the Royal Society, the premier scientific society in, in England to this day, Bacon was central to infusing a scientific basis into the origins for a modern myth of progress. Indeed, what Bacon proposed was that, was that through Baconian science, humankind would enjoy a new state of harmony. Through the challenging of ancient tradition adopting a new approach to reality, humanity would enjoy immense progress religiously, socially, and personally. Uh, Baconum, uh, Bacon's magnum opus, the Instauratio Magna, contains the most important texts he wrote and the fulfillment of his millenarian and utopian dream undergird its inception. The term instauratio, argues Charles Whitney, is taken from the Vulgate and alludes to the restoration of Solomon's temple. 
So while establish and restore might adequately translate the word, one must also recognize that it carries a very particular connotation charged with religious symbolic value for Bacon. For what is being restored are man's faculties, which have been lost in the fall. As Bacon states, both things can be repaired even in this life to some extent, the former by religion and faith and the latter by the arts and sciences. For the curse did not make the creation and utter an irrevocable outlaw. In virtue of the sentence, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, man by manifold labors and not by disputation, certainly, or by useless magical ceremonies, compels the creation in time and in part to provide him with bread that is to serve the purposes of human life. The instauration is the process by which humanity can, in a sense, as Bacon says, limit the effects of its unredeemed state. The fall of man brought with it alienation from God and a marred relation with creation. And Bacon held that the rift between God could only be rejoined through supernatural and ecclesial means. But bridging the chasm separating humanity from creation was within the power of humanity. As the great uh, historian of science, um, Peter Harrison claims in his book, the fall of man and the foundations of science he says this. In essence, this is how we are to understand Bacon's account of the two distinct ways in which there might be a restoration of what was lost in the fall. While the loss of innocence could be restored only by grace, human dominion, made possible by Adamic knowledge, was not a supernatural gift, but a natural capacity. The instauratio magna is the outline that Bacon purports to restore man's sovereignty over nature, which is evident to the book of Genesis for him. The centerpiece of Bacon's instauratio magna, the novum organum, is his proposed method for alleviating this marred relationship with nature. And in this text, Bacon speaks of the specific ways in which humanity's fall from grace limits the reliability of what humanity can actually know about the world. Bacon refers to these inherent human errors and coming to terms with reality as his doctrine of the idols. It is not important to go into, these de into the details here, but what is important is to recognize that Bacon proposed a way to limit these idols inherent in human experience by applying his Baconian science. Essentially, Bacon's program departed from his forebears in a greater emphasis on rigorous testing, stricter record keeping, and devising principles from induction rather than deductions from first principles devised from Aristotelian logic, as was common during his time. Now, I'm going to uh, share the frontispiece to uh, Bacon's Instauratio Magna so that you can um, see this image about the next. Can everybody see that you have two pillars on either side? So this is the frontispiece, the basically the the, the inner um, um, uh, on the inside cover of of the book. So the centerpiece, the image you're looking at now, is um, is sorry. <laughs> this particular image shows um, or symbolically what he thought. Um, his new uh, method could essentially bring. Let's see. So it, it illustrates the anthropological significance that Bacon attributes to his work. The two pillars here, the pillars of Hercules, represent the boundary between the known and the unknown in the ancient world. 
The ship depicted symbolically signifies, quote, the concept of the ancient cosmos in which man had a definite place in the order of things. Knowledge in this conception depended on the discovery of the boundaries of man's nature so that he did not fall into a tragic life of wanton and animalic behavior, of sin or of sinful pride that caused him to overstep his boundaries and come into conflict with the gods. What Bacon is alluding to in this image is an absolute transformation of man from one who was confined by the ancient myth to one which broaches upon the divine. For Bacon, humanity stood on the brink of a new epoch and had the opportunity to throw off the shackles of its forebears and enjoy a more complete life in relation to both the world and God. This could only be made possible through his proposed method, which would eventually become modern science, as he was the patron of the founding of the Royal Society here, here in England. And if you want to know what essentially he thought his, uh, his new method, how he was going to overhaul society, just read his famous um, Utopia, the New Atlantis, which is um, very, very interesting. All right, I'm going to stop sharing this now. Bacon's legacy of progress through technoscience spread like wildfire through the 18th and 19th centuries, but now with an increasingly secular tone. Indeed, these centuries galvanized the myth of progress, allowing it to seep into the subconscious of Western Europe and America. Philosophical figureheads of this era, including Auguste Comte, Hegel, Mill, and Marx. Comte's work was especially influential on the rest of social and moral philosophy of the 19th century. And then he preached love as a principle, the order as a foundation, and progress as a goal. Indeed, his progressive ordering of history depended upon the intellectual development of mankind in three tiers, the theological, the metaphysical, and the positivist or scientific. And Comte claimed that each of the physical disciplines had reached the final scientific stage, physics and chemistry, for example, but that the time was ripe to apply the sciences to society as a whole. He maintained that if society were to be ordered according to his positivist science, it would enjoy nothing less than utopia set forth uh, and set forth these principles and their effects in his famous text, System of Positive Polity. And others of notable repute, such as Hegel and Marx, similarly contended that a rationalistic or scientific account of history yielded a natural vision of progress as well. Much like Comte, Hegel's account of progress depended upon the development of the mind or intellect in history. For Hegel, this progress owed its existence to the logical structure inherent in the world spirit, working its way out through history. His famous dialectic, thesis, synthesis, and synthesis, when applied to history, yielded a gradual ascent of cultures from primitive man through to the ancients and, of course, budding in cosmopolitan Germany for Hegel. It was a logical inevitability that history progresses and the various areas of human achievement get historically better from politics to religion and indeed even aesthetics. Marx, a devout follower of Hegel, has been similarly interpreted along deterministic lines. In spite of recent developments to the contrary, the inevitability of economic progress seems to line the pages of such works as Capital and the Communist Manifesto. The preface of the first edition of Capital proclaims the inevitable decline of capitalism and the praised ascendancy of socialism, quote, working with iron necessity towards inevitable results. And we find similar descriptions of the Communist Manifesto where he states, in broad outlines, we can designate the Asiatic, 
the, the ancient, the feudal, and the modern bourgeois modes of production as so many progressive epics in the economic formation of society. As for Hegel, the inevitability of the progress of history seemed a scientific truth for Marx, but whereas it was asserted on metaphysical and logical grounds for Hegel, it was economics and social stratification that drove it for Marx. But this myth of progress and its appeal to techno-science isn't just found in the philosophical writings um, of the 18th and 19th century. It's reflected in artwork and advertisements of the era, both revealing how deeply embedded it was in the social psyche of the time, and also helped to propagate the, the myth of progress and the, and the wider populace. In fact, I'm now going to show you the next slide as well. If I can do that. Perfect. So here's an image. Uh, for instance, the image here is taken from one of the most prolific American lithographers of the time, Courier and Ives, in 1876. The caption you might see underneath reads, the progress of the century. And depicted in are telegraphs trains and steamboats. Of particular note is the lettering coming out of the telegraph that reads, liberty and union, now and forever, and one and inseparable, referring to how these technologies were critical to binding together the remote areas of the United States at the time, and how technology was seen to bolster the very nationalism and identity of its people. Something similar is seen in this next image, painted by John Gast in 1872 called American Progress. The scene depicts the ideology of manifest destiny where the settlers march into the vast unknown with the intention of taming the expansive and rugged West. In the picture is depicted the old Republican symbol of liberty, here the, the angelic figure, but with a new name, Progress. She brings with her the light of advancement, as you see, right, as she's kind of advancing, that on the left-hand side of the screen is dark, what's behind her is, is illuminated. Um, but she also carries with her, you notice in her hand, the wire of the telegraph. The telegraph and the train in the background became the symbols which would bind the edge of human civilization with those cities east of the Mississippi River. We see these American settlers armed with instruments of progress marching towards the savages in the darkened half of the picture, symbolizing the reform of these primitives and heralding an age of civility and culture, all in the name of science and technology and American nationalism. As this picture represents, the idealism of manifest destiny would become so entwined with America's growing obsession with technological progress. So much so that when progress was invoked, technology was almost always its basis. It would be the hope of progress through technology that would take over for manifest destiny as the central ideological theme in America in the 19th and 20th centuries. If you want to read a bit more about that, um, pick up my book, Eschatology and the Technological Future. Well, what we see in this genealogy what we see in this genealogy of the myth of progress from its humble beginnings, latent in ancient sources through to its full blossoming by the end of the 19th century is a steady removal of the engine of progress as providence 
to one increasingly dependent upon the ingenuity of humanity in science and technology. The driving force, the catalyst of progress by the time we enter the 20th century is clearly technoscience. But this myth of progress is not without its skeptics. What we find appearing in the 19th century and increasingly with vigor into the early 20th century are dissenting voices which are not swept away by the jingoistic proclamations of philosophers, economists, technologists, and scientists on the merits of technoscience to herald in a better future. We begin to see hints, whispers in the 19th century with figures such as Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky, and even Nietzsche who attack the philosophical side of the myth of progress. Dostoevsky's The Underground Man gives a harsh diatribe against the myth of progress represented in the Crystal Palace, a symbol of utopianism taken from um, the, the famous text, What is to be Done? Kierkegaard is the ultimate critic of Hegelianism with its assurance, assurance a stance on the advancement of history, where Kierkegaard retorts that man can have no such godlike point of view on history. And Nietzsche is no friend of progress recounting how humankind has slipped from the heroic virtues embodied in Greek myths to the slave morality of Christianity. These modern notions of progress are merely echoes of millennial dreams robbing us of our true vocation as individuals in the present, as Nietzsche would say. We may even see this criticism of the myth of progress as part of a much more far-ranging criticism of modernity that hit center stage in the 20th century. One of the dominant attacks on modernity from what has been labeled post-modernity is the skepticism of a trajectory in history, the appeal to an ultimate narrative. As Jean-Francois Lyotard poignantly remarks, the postmodern condition is characterized as an, incredul an incredulity towards meta-narratives. This death of the meta-narrative is particularly launched at the ubiquity of the myth of progress. And Leotard says, this incredulity is undoubtedly a product of progress in the sciences. While these critics are important to the philosophical questioning of the myth of progress, the actual events of the early 20th century have done the most to erode at this confidence in the myth of progress as well. As Robert Nisbet, who I mentioned earlier, has put it, it is often said that this vainted faith is dead in the West at least, killed by the world, killed by World War I, by the Great Depression, by World War II, by the spectacle of military despotism, under whatever ideological label, galloping across the earth at rising speed, by belief in the exhaustion of nature and her resources, by a malaise compounded of boredom, apathy and disillusionment at one extreme and by consecration to mindless terror at the other or by some other lethal force. The utter destruction of mankind had never occurred on such a grand scale prior to the 20th century. The death toll of World War I at 16 million and some 20 years later, World War II at 60 million. And of course, the atrocities of calculated and almost scientific precision of the extermination of the Jews in the Holocaust sent a shockwave through society unhinging the cool, calm, and collected intellectual belief in the inexorable advancement of humankind, for it was the very core of civilization that had committed such atrocities. We're still recovering today from the apocalyptic terror in history that these events have wrought. Indeed, we're living our own, perhaps. 
But philosophical and historical criticisms aside, dissent also arose from the very techno-scientific arena itself. Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, was a vanguard for considering differently the belief that we could at least say that science progressive, even if its translation into society may not yield the same. Kuhn's meta-historical description of science affords progress in science within what he terms normal science, but not necessarily through scientific revolutions. In normal science, young scientists are trained to see a single paradigm through which they view their entire field. Their primary sources of knowledge are the textbooks that divulge the most modern paradigm and the accepted solutions to common problems. These textbooks give a mild and interpreted history of science. Previous areas of science are seen as archaic and irrelevant if they are even recognized by scientists at all. Think about the uh, proliferation of the number of editions of textbooks in the sciences. If you were to come to a class and say, I have the first edition of this chemistry book, they'd be like, we're on, on to the 20th and say like, you need to get a new book. Everyone in the scientific community operates under a single paradigm during normal science. And he says the direction, the methods, instruments, and problems that scientists face are all fixed by the established theory. He states, viewed from within any community, however, whether of scientists or of non-scientists, the result of successful creative work is progress. How could it be anything else? Progress seems bound to occur because all scientists seem to be working together towards a common goal, working with the same tools. But the issue becomes more complex when this normal science is disrupted and unsolved problems become more pressing and competing paradigms begin to arise. It is during this historical phase in the operation of science that of a scientific revolution that progress becomes untenable for Kuhn. The issue is that, un, uh, that unlike uh, a bit like Gestalt switches, uh, sorry, unlike Gestalt switches, one cannot choose between various competing paradigms. One can't switch from the old paradigm to the new and back again at will. Kuhn argues that not only does the scientist see the world differently under the new paradigm, but that the data that was originally under the auspices of the old paradigm becomes entirely new data. In a sense, the world has changed with the new paradigm and one must reinterpret everything using the new. Reject, Kuhn rejects the claim that science progresses through history based upon his model of scientific revolutions. Here we have yet another reason to doubt this myth of progress. For the very engine of that progress, technoscience, even science itself, doesn't seem itself to be progressing either. If our myth of progress depends upon the scientific appeal to knowing more today about reality than we did yesterday, and especially centuries ago, Kuhn has given us uh, a somewhat compelling model of that history which denies any such progress. But let's turn more to the present day to uh, issues of technological ut utopianism and transhumanism. The story I might be telling you might leave you with a more defined landscape of the myth of progress than it really is. The picture of the climax of progress in the 19th century only to decline steadily until the present is only partially correct. Yes, there have been considerable censures of the myth in the 20th century, but as the title of my presentation insinuates, this myth is surely not dead and particularly in techno-science. And in spite of the world wars, philosophical and historical criticism, and even a blow to the actual practice of science with Kuhn, it's still very much alive and well. 
Today, we see this renewal in various utopian ideologies involving technology. Consider this particular picture here. This is the last one I'll be sharing. Created by A. Leidenfrost. It appeared in the popular magazine, Popular Mechanics in January, 1952, only seven years after World War II had ended. This is the golden anniversary edition, which celebrates 50 years of publishing where the lead article is entitled, Science on the March. This article recounts all the great technologies that had been invented during the intervening years from its first publication in 1902 to 1952. The progress of the airplane lines the sky above from the biplane to the jet aircraft. And below is depicted the advance of the automobile from the first Model T to the modern car. In the foreground, we see cutting edge technologies and that of speculative inventions such as rocket ships, cyclotrons, and even flying saucers. The author of the lead article speculates that just as the last 50 years of technological progress have drastically changed the course of humankind and history itself, he sees no reason why technology itself should not continue to rapidly advance and take on some of the most difficult global issues of our time. Images such as these speak towards the continuity of the myth of progress through the 20th century, where technology serves as the basis for this progress as well. Stop sharing now. This belief in technological progress is taken to new extremes by members of the transhumanism movement. Uh, the scholar Philip Vordu is right to note that belief in technological progress is one of, if not the premier doctrine of the transhumanism movement. As he asserts, one need only reference the World Transhumanist Associations, or Humanity Plus, I believe is what it's called now, core values which are written by the transhumanist philosopher Nick Bostrom. Bostrom contends that technological progress is one of the main factors for achieving the transhumanist vision. And transhumanist Max Moore lists, quote, perpetual progress as one of the seven principles of extropy, uh, a particular variant of transhumanism. And the word progress is used more than 20 times on the landing page of the Humanity Plus website and its frequently asked questions. Transhumanists claim along with uh, other technological utopians mentioned here, that technology is the linchpin to social and political progress. In other words, the individual human experience is bettered because the surrounding environment becomes more hospitable. Transhumanism radicalizes this myth of progress. It asserts that not only does technology transform society and the economy for the better, but that individual human experience can be affected directly through bodily enhancement. Transhumanists advocate for applying growing technologies such as nanotechnology and other computer hardware to the human body. Uh, Bostrom's uh, uh, wonderful essay, Letter from Utopia, is instructive in speaking of how this progress will feel to our transhuman progeny. Um, this is uh, a quotation um, from that particular writing that the transhumanist philosopher Bostrom writes. 
the protagonist or the author in this is his future transhuman self speaking back to his contemporary human self. He says this to his, his transhuman, this is the transhuman future Bostrom talking to the present human. You could say I'm happy, that I feel good. You could say that I feel surpassing bliss, but these are words invented to describe human experience. What I feel is as far beyond human feelings as my thoughts are beyond human thoughts. I wish I could show you what I have in mind. If only I could share one second of my conscious life with you. Transhumanists claim we need not resort to indirect measures to bring internal bliss and progress. Instead, we have the power to engineer this through applying technology directly to the human body. Transhumanists and posthuman speculators are not necessarily naive about the force of technology to bring about solely positive outcomes. Bostrom and his Future of Humanity Institute arguably devote more time to analyzing the existential risks that can come with the rampant utilization of these new technologies. He estimates that ultimate annihilation of the human species has at least a 25% chance of happening in the next 100 years. And Sir Martin Rees suggested it is actually probably closer to 50%. Even adamant future, uh, futurist, uh, another transhumanist, Raymond Kurzweil, admits there are significant social, political, and existential dangers to widespread usage of technology. In the case of Kurzweil and Bostrom, however, this gloom is couched in a much larger meta-narrative of progress. Kurzweil states that progress arises within an evolutionary system and contends that evolution is a feature beyond just biology and is visible in technological growth and indeed the entire cosmos. He says this, ultimately the entire universe will become saturated with our intelligence. This is the destiny of the universe. We will determine our own fate rather than have it determined by the current dumb, simple machine-like forces that rule celestial mechanics. Furthermore, Bostrom claims that our chances are much worse without utilizing these technologies. And what awaits us on the other side is nothing short of bliss. There may be minor setbacks, both say, but overall, progress is the resounding paradigm. This belief in technological progress is taken to new extremes with members um, as well. Sorry, let's, I'm, I'm now gonna be moving to the conclusion. Well, I have charted the rise of the myth of progress in the West to its ascent in the 19th century, where it underwent significant criticism in the 20th to the point of almost dying out entirely in the mid to late 20th century. But this myth has gained new fervor in techno-scientific circles in the last half of the 20th century and continues to spark hope in the 21st with a greater appeal to technological advancement today than ever before. It is here that we find transhumanism taking up the well-worn and off-sided mantle of the myth of progress in our own time. I'm not here to argue for or against the merits of trusting in the myth of progress. Rather, my claim here is to suggest that trusting the myth of progress is a thoroughly religious act. As I said at the beginning, it is proper to speak of belief in progress as a myth because of the resilience, embeddedness, and existential nature of adherence to it. Many see this belief in progress as a bastardization of Christian millennial dreaming, causing it to be at least indebted to Christian religious history, if not thoroughly religious itself. Paul Ricoeur refers to the scientific variant of the myth of progress as, quote, a rationalist corruption of Christian eschatology. Furthermore, the psychological studies I cited earlier reveal the close proximity of belief in the myth of progress and religious concerns. 
Both were said to function existentially in the same way for the individual studied. There is a historical and psychological precedent in claiming that trust is a religiously motivated act. When transhumanists talk of progress, they overwhelmingly assert that technology is largely responsible for progress in the modern area. To assert this, it seems most transhumanists draw upon a form of technological determinism, where the main feature controlling society and the advancement of the human race from one aspect to the next is clearly technology. However, historians and philosophers of technology are wary of a simplistic causal reduction of world historical events to just technological influence. Technology does not necessarily drive history. Even those in science and technology studies that adhere to a kind of soft technological determinism contend that other factors, economic, political, social, cultural, can drastically alter the outcome of a technology's taking root and hence can have a tremendous effect on societal outcomes. In other words, it is questionable to assert technological determinism and then move to social dicta dictation because of the asserted technological determinism. This is precisely what transhumanism does as it extends the technological sphere of dictation to include the future of the human species and indeed the entire universe. Transhumanism Transhumanists ought to be warned that they move beyond the consensus of the academy in this regard and subsequently are often dismissed because of this hasty move. Finally, if trust in the myth of progress due to technological dictation of society is not an entirely warranted conclusion, then what inspires this trust on the part of transhumanists? This is precisely where studying the possible religious motivations of transhumanism can be an entirely fruitful venture. Indeed, it is a core component of my work and many other um, religious scholars. Indeed, in spite of leading transhumanists, claim, uh, such as Raymond Kurzweil, claiming that transhumanism is not motivated by religious concerns, I've argued here that its adherents could be drawing substantial religious and existential value from its doctrine of the myth of progress. As some have noted, uh, such as uh, Jewish scholar Hava Tarash Samuelson, Transhumanism ought to be viewed as a form of secularist faith. The first step towards dialogue with religious scholars begins with admitting the religious dimensions of transhumanism and the myth of progress is one of its most substantial dogmas. Thank you for your time and I look forward to the discussion.